1: Well, welcome back as we head into Hour 3. I'm picking up kind of from a theme I addressed yesterday in my monologue with one of my favorite public intellectuals and authors, Stephen F. Hayward. Many of you know him as uh, one of the uh, contributors to the Powerline blog, powerlineblog.com. Many may of uh, you may know him from his uh, prodigious uh, authoring of uh, books, uh, biographies and histories uh, of Reagan and uh, other uh, great... Great Lights in the Conservative Movement. His most recent book, M. Stanton Evans, Conservative Wit, Apostle of Freedom. Steve, thanks for joining us, and uh, Happy New Year. Uh,
2: Happy New Year to you, Seth.
1: Thank you. Thank you. I was um, talking with the audience yesterday about a, a growing concern, an increasing concern I have with the state of the Republican Party, a little bit in Arizona, but really more nationally. And you know, I care about it to the degree that I find it the the only real vehicle to, to implement uh, and promulgate conservatism. So I think it matters as a political, as a political institution. But it seems to be very confused right now, very divided. Um, you look at the Speaker of the House fight. Uh, you look at where the base is with. Donald Trump and where Donald Trump is in the Speaker of the House fight. You look at some of the candidates who think they have a chance when there might only really be two candidates that have a shot to run for president. Chairmanship of the RNC seems confused. And in any event, you take my hopefully you take my drift and you live in a state, California, where you also teach, where you've seen what happens when a party collapses, I think. Big setup. How do you see the Republican Party right now?
2: Uh, well, I think you're right that it's uh, confused, adrift, uh, headless. Uh, you, use any pejorative you want. Uh, although I do think it should be said, and since you said, let's think about the past in yeah. the '70s.
0: Yeah,
2: I think it's been. I think it's been a worse off in the Good. past uh, on a few occasions, or at least as bad off as today. Good. Um, so I'll give you one parallel. Uh, everyone's disappointed with the election result. You know, we were promised a red wave, yeah. and. You know, we, we got a riptide yeah. instead. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, my mind went back to the late 70s, because we've seen this once before. Yep. If you go back to the midterm election of 1978, right. quite similar in some ways. You had a president amidst times of high inflation, soaring energy prices, uh, unpopular with the general public, and I actually went back and looked this up. By the way, there was the House Republican leader uh, at that time, I I think it was John Rhodes yeah. from Arizona. Yep. Yeah,
1: yep. Yeah, yep. Yeah.
2: He was saying ahead of the election in nineteen seventy eight, we think we're gonna be forty to fifty seats in the House. Yeah. If we only gain twenty five to thirty, I'd be disappointed. Yeah. And guess what? The Republicans gained twelve seats. Right. A huge and only three in the Senate. That's right. So by the way, those gains uh, better, surprise. better, games, better than November, but to, yes, think, okay, uh, yeah. 160, yeah. What's that? A little better than hey. we did a month ago, but yes, still, <laughs> still. Well, yes, well I'm far, not, far short of the a yeah. However, yeah. think about the levels. Mm-hmm. Uh, three seats in the Senate meant Republicans were all the way up to forty-one. Okay, which meant they could barely sustain yeah. a filibuster. Yeah, uh, and then in the, in the House, gaining twelve seats brought them to I think around 160, 165, somewhere yeah. around so there. So not
1: taking the majority. Uh, Back. so yeah fair point fair point
2: yeah not even close
1: yeah. to a majority yeah. right uh, yeah.
2: although you know worth mentioning that 1978 election saw among those 12 uh, well among the winners for republicans were newt gingrich yep. who said we should go for it and another guy named dick cheney who yep. of course <laughs> was very popular until most recently yep. okay yep. leave that aside <laughs> so um uh, and by the way people at the time who looked at it and said well two problems here one is Republicans kind of had lousy candidates Mm -hmm. in 78, Mm -hmm. and people say that now. I think that's overstated, but we can come back to that. And the other thing was the overhang of Nixon and Watergate was still up in the air. And so, you know, the case of Donald Trump is not identical, but I think there's a similar phenomenon going on. I think that's undeniable that Trump, for all of his virtues and things that you and I liked about him and still like about him, does turn off a lot of voters and maybe um, a decisive number, unfortunately. Um, so, uh, but then there's a, the second part to it. You know, I was, um, throughout the election year, I kept thinking to myself, what's the Republican program? What, what Republicans do if they get majorities? Yeah. What, what's their answer? Yeah. And they were silent about this. Mm-hmm. And in fact, um, you know, supposedly Mitch McConnell said, say nothing, run on nothing. I mean, Rick Scott, a senator from Florida in charge of the Republican Senate campaign, did have a plan that didn't seem very well thought through, and to the extent it got publicity, it was mostly unpopular. So, you know, you you can't beat something with nothing. And I think Republicans were kind of without a message. Or the message that came across was, you know, people like Carrie Lake, who I think is very talented and I really adore her, but maybe too much emphasis on the last election. And Mm -hmm. I think that's Mm -hmm. probably an error because most elections are about the future more Mm -hmm. than the past.
1: Yeah, there is a a set of thinking that... uh, Carrie Lake might have even done better and won had she dropped that kind of talk, perhaps not even really possibly needing Donald Trump, given how great her talents in her own right were that, you know, the idea that she needed him or she needed to focus on 2020 might have ended up being more of a millstone just given how good she was in her own right. She may have she may in other words, some people are thinking and saying diminished her own currency that way.
2: That could be right. I, I'm reluctant to offer firm judgment about I am it. Too. Uh, I am too. Because, yeah. because I hope she comes back. I hope, I hope we've not seen the last of her. as uh, you and I both agree, she's very talented and I think will really go places. And I, I, that's the biggest heartbreak of this election to me was her uh, apparent loss.
1: Um, yes. Uh, yes, there's a lot there. And, and, I'll, and we'll come back to it in a moment, if that's okay. I want to stay with sure. the 70s just for a second. I remember a conversation... Some years ago with Haley Barber, you remember Haley, oh, yeah. and he said things were so bad after Watergate, so 74, 75, 76, leading into your touchstone year of 78, he said things were so bad, there were serious conversations of changing the name of the party at a national level. <laughs> yes. And, and we're uh, not quite there yet.
2: Well, that's a typically dumb idea. Yeah, right, changing your label right, doesn't right. change your underlying problems. Right, and, right. And, of course, you know, we all remember what happened two years later in 1980, a huge Republican landslide. But I think what happened between 78 and 80, quite aside from Ronald Reagan getting ready to run a great campaign, was the Republican Party itself decided, you know, we need to become the party of ideas. Yeah. We need need to start standing for new ideas. So you had, you know, tax cuts became orthodoxy, uh, a stronger foreign policy. In other words, the conservatives who dominated the Republican Party then and now – Became a lot more assertive uh, and a lot more forward with ideas, and they revealed the exhaustion of the left, or you know Jimmy Carter's liberalism, right? And and I think you know that could that pattern could repeat itself between now and the election in twenty twenty four.
1: I think that is the recipe. Um, I, I I think that that pass should be our prologue uh, prologue to to instructing how we got from seventy eight to eighty. I was reminding the audience too, um, you know, there weren't as many conservative public intellectuals of uh, great repute in the late 70s uh, maybe the two greatest uh, tell me if i'm missing or wrong i would say george will and william buckley maybe maybe do i am i missing someone embarrassingly not even well, they not, were agreed on ronald reagan at first being the nominee and i'd like to remind people of that at times too is that not only was the republican party in some throes, the conservative movement was also a little bit
2: well, yes, uh, but I think what you saw, well, I mean, you can mention that Will and Buckley, but, uh, you know, it was uh, in the late 70s when Milton Friedman became famous yeah, after winning the yeah, Nobel good, Prize. good, good, And, you know, had his monster best-selling book, Me to Choose, yeah. and his PBS TV series that yep. got a huge audience. Good. Um, the other thing you remember, though, is that, and again, uh, you know, there's the, the, the saying attributed falsely, I think, to Mark Twain that history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. Yeah. The other thing that happened in the mid to late 70s was the rise of the neoconservatives. And, of course, you know, they were controversial then and especially today. But the point is, they were liberals, as the phrase went, who were mugged by reality and moved over to the right. Right. And now some of them have defected back, as we know, but leave that aside for now. I think we're seeing some of that happening today. Uh, You know, you see people who, you know, 10 years ago I would have said, uh, uh, you know, well, I, I exaggerate only for effect. You know, if I were going to list the, the worst journalists in the world, I would have had Glenn Greenwald and Matt Taibbi of Rolling Stone. I'm with I you. List.
1: I'm with you. I, I agree with yeah, what you're saying. Yes, right. yes,
2: yes. And, yes. and there are and other intellectuals on the left who have broken decisively with woke leftism. Yep. And I think that's very encouraging, and I think that's going to make some difference. And so, you know, again, uh, not identical, but similar. this um, I- I've never believed in the cycles of history theory, except lately I'm kind of starting to.
1: Well, it, th- there are some interesting parallels, to be sure. I'm going to run into a quick commercial break. Let me pick up with you sure. on some of this. The other interesting part, interesting you put out the neoconservative notion I like to remind people, and I'll take your correction on the other side of the break if if correction need there be, uh, the the evangelical or moral majority type voter, Mm. the values voter we call him now, I suppose, which originally, if my history is right, was really kind of supportive of Carter over Ford in 76. Let's pick up on that that section of it when we come right back. Steve Hayward is our guest. His most recent book, M. Stanton Evans, Conservative Wit, apostle of freedom. You know him from the Powerline blog. He's written several books history on Ronald Reagan. He wrote a great book on a mutual teacher of ours, Harry Jaffa and Walter Burns who we quote here a lot. Patriotism is not enough. He and I will be right back. (laughs) Professor Stephen Hayward is our guest. Uh, Welcome back, Steve. Um, Just talking a little bit about the conservative movement, the Republican Party in the late 70s and looking for either parallels or instructions going forward now into 2023 and the big stakes in 2024. You were talking about the element of neoconservatives that helped contributed to the um, Republican Party's resurgence in 1980. Uh, The evangelical vote was an interesting one. The Jerry Falwell moral majority vote, um, which I believe really kind of – sharpened its or you know got its got its got its political muscles built in supporting Carter probably over religious reasons again I'll I'll stand corrected if I'm wrong on that and then got their fingers burned and kind of stayed in the in the fold of the right and the conservative and the Republican party ever since is that history roughly
2: right Oh, yes, it is. Uh, it, it is kind of amazing to go back to the mid-1970s, 75, 76, yeah. when a lot of people who later became leaders of the religious right, like Pat Robertson, supported Jimmy Carter in okay. 1976, okay. for example, okay. and and people like him. Uh, and it, I guess it should be observed that the Protestant vote in America had tended to always be Republican, by a decent margin, except in the South, where you have the old Democratic loyalties of Southern Baptist in yeah, particular. Yeah. And this is the years when that all switched, when Southern Protestants uh, switched teams. And it wasn't over racism and all the the stuff that the left likes to throw out about the Southern strategy. It was because Carter turned out to be a cultural liberal uh, whose administration was actively hostile to uh, religious communities. Particularly on Evangeline. the issue of
1: education, as I recall. It, Exactly right. Yeah.
2: Uh, that and other things, and and you know that was a key part of why Ronald Reagan flipped the South on the presidential level starting in 1980. You know, the South really stayed in play for Democrats into the 1990s. You know, oh. Bill Clinton did and, and Al Gore in 92 and 96 won a number mm-hmm. of southern states.
1: With a, with a Confederate um, flag on their bumper sticker, as I recall. <laughs>
2: yes, that's exactly right. Okay. Um, and and I do think that, uh, I mean, a lot to say about Carter. What was not really clear at the time, uh, except the really astute people, and has been forgotten ever since, is that Carter got the nomination, or he got enough support from Northern liberals because he was the only alternative to george wallace ah oh,
1: right we, i forgot we, about that
2: yes we forget now yeah. that yeah. wallace was a serious contender to at least have enough strength to have brokered the 76th uh, i forgot for about his
1: run after 72 but that's right that's right, right. good good for you right. Good, good good and,
2: and carter very cleverly persuaded a number of northerners i'm the only person who can can suppress wallace once and for all and by the way, keep the South in line, which they've been losing, you know, under McGovern and you know Humphrey and all the rest of that. So, uh, tra- Carter is this really strange transitional figure, and you know, what can be said about that? But yeah. those yeah. are key years. And by the way, Joe Biden is kind of a transitional figure, right? He's oh, go old with that. Fossil, yeah, go with that. I mean, old fossil. You can just stop right there, right? But the point is, is that he surrendered to the progressive left of the party, which is much more radical than it was under Carter or Clinton.
1: Yeah.
2: Uh, and what comes next? You sort of shudder to think about
1: it. Um, our, our, our mutual buddy Charles Kessler, uh, who uh, I had on about a week or two ago, Bill had him on about a week or two ago, talking about his introductory uh, essay in the new uh, Claremont Review of Books. Uh, says there was a red wave in uh, twenty uh, twenty two. It's just that it was in Florida, and that <laughs> we ought to we ought to look at those lessons from there. And he didn't mean Mar-a-Lago. Um, I I I, I'm in, I I, I, I'm inclined to, I'm, I'm inclined to agree with him. There is something very, there's two weird things going on. I think there's something very Reagan-esque about Ron DeSantis. And I think there's something interesting too about elements of our movement that seem to want to say things like, you know, it's enough with Reagan or it's, you know what I'm getting at. It's yeah. enough. I, I think we're a little too quick on that. Honestly, I, I'd love your thoughts.
2: Uh, yeah, I think DeSantis is quite talented, determined, thoughtful, uh, clearly a team player. Again, I you know, I'm sure a lot of your listeners are, are, are enthusiastic for Trump, and I get that. Uh, but here's one key difference is Trump really does put personal loyalty above everything yeah. else. And that's not you know, that that's not unreasonable in some ways. However, what you see about DeSantis is is, you know, he spent he raised presidential levels of money. What did he raised two hundred million dollars yeah. yeah. for a governor's race. Yeah. Those are presidential campaign numbers. Yeah. But he spread that money around mm-hmm. and, and helped Republicans gain what, five house seats, mm-hmm. whatever it is, and mm-hmm. a hammer lock on the state legislature. He spent that money building up the party because his own reelection was a short It still seems like Trump raised, you know, over $100 million and spent very little of it, even on behalf of the candidates he supported. Yeah. that, to me, that's just political malpractice. Yeah. That's just, I don't know what what he's thinking, what he's doing. Uh, But, look, I mean, the successful candidates who came back from oblivion, um, well, Richard Nixon in particular in the 60s, but even Reagan after losing in 76 to Gerald Ford, they spent a lot of time building up the party, helping candidates win. Yep. Not taking credit for it, you know, staying out of the way, but but assisting them and you know... Yeah, there's not much braggadocio with
1: DeSantis. There really isn't. I mean, as much as uh, you don't hear it, you don't.
2: Yeah, right, yeah. And, and people, you know, a lot of people say, "Gosh, he's young; he's forty-four, whatever he is," and he's got lots of time. And I think that's mistaken. Mm-hmm. No, think, it is;
1: it is mistaken.
2: I think you got to strike when the iron is hot. And yeah, the, who knows and, what you know, four years know, the iron will iron bring? Is hot now. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. Or, or,
1: or, or yeah, uh, six years, I suppose. Um, that yeah. that's right, Steve. That's right. Let's um, say a say a, say a word about this. Is interesting. I haven't thought about it. It, it. Ten years ago, if you asked me who who that point you made, if you asked me who some of the journalists were that i would have just never wanted much to do with and you threw out names like greenwald and taibi you'd have been on the right side of my brain yeah uh, there is something going on with journalism too we always knew the new york times and the washington post was against us that's gone into into what hyperspeed and yet yes. some of these journalists that were kind of part of that world maybe you throw barry weiss in there maybe um, you know, they, they, they're starting to step back and say, yeah, wait, hold on, hold on, right? There, there's something new about that. You didn't see that before. You didn't see that before, I don't think.
2: Uh, maybe, maybe here and there, but I think more of that now. I mean, I think my canary in the coal mine on this is the Washington Post. Good. Uh, where, you know, as you may have heard, they've lost – Five hundred thousand subscribers in the last two years I mean that's not just a erosion that's a collapse right and and when has that paper become worse in some ways? used than to be the an okay paper now? I thought you know
1: knowing what, what you were getting that? i I thought it used to be an okay paper knowing, that, knowing you were getting a generally liberal paper, it had a good editorial page it was pre- I thought it was a pretty good paper up until about five, six, seven years ago, maybe up until the Iraq war maybe.
2: Yeah, I mean even after I mean I could do you a balance sheet because I used to follow these things really closely. Yeah. Uh, judging reporters in different departments in the New York Times versus the Post. Oh, okay. The Times was better than the Post in some areas like environment and energy, believe it or not. Oh, really? okay. Pretty good 10 years ago. I think okay. they've slipped quite a bit, but the Post was terrible. Um but yeah, they were good in other ways and Nowadays, uh, it's you know a pretty woke institution. Uh, they just published a ridiculous article in the last couple of days about all the enslavers as they call them among the founding fathers and early leaders of the republic, and you know as if this was news. The Thomas Jefferson owned slaves, right?
1: Um, but, <laughs> let me but let me. T- t- there's the music. Let me take one uh, another quick commercial sure. break here. Let's let's pick up on that. The, the role of the media. How important is it anymore? Let me throw that at you mm. when we come back. Yeah. How important is the Washington Post and the New York Times anymore compared to other outlets like this, but also social media?
2: Steve Hayward is
1: our guest. He and I will be right back.
2: Welcome back to the Seth
1: Leapson Show. I'm Seth and delighted to have with us uh, presidential and uh, American historian Stephen Hayward. Many of you know him from the Powerline blog and uh, many of you know him from his uh, his great books uh, on everything from Reagan to uh, conservative leaders uh, like M. Stanton Evans and Harry Jaffa. And the like, uh, Steve. Uh, we were talking a little bit about the media, the role of the media. You're in the media. You're in social media. You're you're a popular guest and guest host of of shows. Uh, how important is? I mean, we rail against the Post and the New York Times and CBS. Uh, is it a diminishing return for them? Are they? St- I mean, they're important because I think they influence the culture of people who don't actually pay that much attention to the news. They put something in the air that I think tilts the culture liberal left. But maybe it's less important than it used to be. You tell me.
2: Well, you know, it's hard to say, uh, and I'm not quite sure. Um, well, I'll give you two points on this. One is if you go back, gosh, it's got to be 15 years ago now, uh, there's an economist named Tim Grossclose, who's nowadays at George Mason University. He deserves to be better known than he is, but of course, he's a conservative economist, so he gets ignored, Right. right. He did a very careful quantitative study, and, you know, you and I are kind of skeptical of that methodology, uh, but I think sometimes it's correct and useful. And he concluded with a very detailed quantitative analysis that news media bias gave the Democratic Party a three to five point advantage in elections in in, total vote count.
1: In the last election or over generally the last several elections? Well, just generally. No, this is over, you know, Uh twenty
2: years. I forget what the time frame was. But you know, a, a built in media advantage adding up to as much as five points for Democrats. Okay. Um now, with the erosion of, you know, the lost readers that, the, you know, I'm old enough to remember when 70 million Americans watched Walter Cronkite. Right. Now, I think that the combined audience, the network, all three network news broadcasts is maybe 30 million. Oh, I it, don't even you know, know if it's that
1: high. But, yeah, go ahead. Take the point. Yeah, whatever. The point. Yeah. the point
2: is, is yeah. that we don't have, you know, the media does not have the choke points they used to have. However. And this is point number two uh, even with their diminished reach and and the fact that you know public credibility of the news media is now like lower than used car sales mm-hmm. However, they do still set the terms of the agenda mm-hmm. and they define the contours of the debate. Mm-hmm. And I, I, you know, a perfect example right now is this uh, guy in New York. Uh, this guy Santos, who uh, George yep. Santos, yep. Who was a yep. the Cong- newly Congress, elected congressman, and, right? Mm-hmm. You know, he he lied about everything in his background. He didn't do any of the stuff that he said he did. You mean like and... getting
1: arrested in South Africa with Mandela and things mm-hmm. like that?
2: <laughs> well, now, that's see, that's now you you know where I'm going with yeah, all this, yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Which is there's this drumbeat in the media, well, he has to resign. He has to be forced out of office. He hasn't committed any crimes that we know of. There, right. there may be a financial question, but that, aside from an election, I mean, if there's a real financial crime, that's an ordinary crime. But that's just alleged. But the point is, the media drumbeat right now is he must be run out of office. He yeah. can't be sworn in yet. Yeah. Well, okay, fine. If we're going to do that, uh, how about Elizabeth Warren uh-huh. lying about uh-huh. her ancestors uh-huh. get jobs? Uh-huh. Like, uh, you know, her, her state bar card in Texas said her ethnicity was Native American. You know, the, Steve, I don't think she could have become a professor of Harvard without lying. purposes. I
1: don't think she could have become a professor of Harvard with that lie uh, if that lie weren't yes. revealed. If you look at her CV, that is not the CV of Harvard professors. It just isn't.
2: Yeah, that's right. And then what's this? Uh, who's the is it the Connecticut senator who said he served in Vietnam? Yeah, I mean, was, yeah, was yeah the former attorney Hawaii. general.
1: Right. Yeah, I know who you mean. Yeah,
2: yeah. right. So and, and, yeah, and of course Biden. I mean, good lord. <laughs> so. So, you know, it's not beyond just a double standard. The fact that the media is now, uh, you know, gives, uh, turns a blind eye to the, you know, uh, and relentless lying by celebrities on the left, and the demand now that Santos cannot be seated because he lied about his background in an election campaign. Uh, that tells you what you need to know about Yes, and, and it tells you the problem. Of the media.
1: Yeah, but it tells you the problem because there will be umpteenth percent more of this population even of non-close news followers that will know of the santos story right that will not know anything about what we're talking about with joe biden's lies or elizabeth Warren's. Right. um and that that still sets a cultural tone but thank god for some of our outlets that we have left and it would be interesting if gross close i don't know if he did this or not it'd be interesting if he looked at some of the studies that um That I think McLaughlin and associates did on how much the election this past uh, 2020 election to two two cycles ago was changed by the censorship of the Hunter Biden story, which I I, I think there's enough substantial evidence to show that it did. Let me let me take one more break and then I'll wrap up with you on the other side. Is that cool? You got a couple more minutes? Yeah, Steve Hayward is our guest, author of The Age of Reagan, author of, uh, most recently, uh, M. Stanton Evans, conservative wit, apostle of freedom. Speaking of uh, conservatives and journalism, M. Stanton Evans was a pioneer in that, author of Churchill on leadership, and the real Jimmy Carter as well. Everyone we're talking about. We haven't talked about Churchill yet. Maybe we should. Steve Hayward and I will be right back. Steve Hayward has been our guest, uh, very generous with his time. And uh, let me also say your friendship, Steve. I've known you a long time, and I appreciate your friendship as well. Uh well, very, thanks. Very much so. Uh, very much so. Um, media uh, from our side. So we talked about kind of the influence of the left and the liberal media. Uh, Thank God we have outlets like Powerline. Um, I would say Powerline, where you are, uh, is responsible for Dan rather not being at the head of CBS anymore and and other great (laughs) revelations that uh, some of our outlets can do from time to time. Um, Someone wrote the other day, if Stalin, Hitler and Elon Musk were walking down the street and a liberal only had one bullet – He'd uh, aim it at Elon Musk. Uh, Maybe an exaggeration, but there's something to that. And it's weird. It's weird because that Elon Musk has gone from such a he- uh, such a hero everywhere to such a bat war of liberal leftists for doing nothing more, nothing more than
2: unsilencing conservatives. Right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think the word I use is not weird, but perverse. OK. Uh, and, of course, that's not unusual with the left. Uh-huh. yeah, I'm I'm having great fun right now joking about how, this may be literally true, it's a great time to pick up Teslas real cheap from your nearest neighborhood liberal. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, right. Uh, and, uh, you know, our our mutual pal, um, Victor Davis Hanson, had a great column on this a couple weeks ago mm-hmm. saying, it tells you something about the world that this uh, pretend billionaire Sam Bankman, yeah. is a great celebrity with all the all the right-thinking people, or, you know, correct-thinking people on the left, mm-hmm. and now suddenly Elon Musk, who is one of the greatest innovators since Edison. And, and didn't lose it, anyone's
1: money, as far as I know.
2: Right. Uh, uh, you know, suddenly public enemy number one, yeah. because he's defected from the party line. By the way, something, you know, I've actually been kind of more favorable to Musk, even when I was criticizing him for depending on government subsidies for the Tesla. Well, uh, you know, most of the people in Silicon Valley, like Bank and Feed or, you know, Facebook, name anybody want, Twitter. What do those guys do? They write software codes and apps for your phone. Elon Musk said, "I'm going to make a car,
1: I'm, and nobody I'm going to go to the space." Nature. Yeah, yeah. But,
2: right. Nobody makes stuff, and he makes a real physical product sure. in a factory, and right. nobody's doing that much anymore. That's and right. That that in my mind marked him out, even with the problematic aspect of depending on government subsidies to make it go.
1: I think part and parcel of it. Maybe this is too early to say but i think i'm going to be born out to be right about this i think part and parcel of that making stuff uh you know being maybe a new leader in our arsenal of democracy such as it is is that there's a war on work there's a war on production here oh. steve um yeah. you know uh, the southwest thing that's going on say what you want about the computer stuff i really worry that that this is a template for, for – for, uh, I think I think there's a real suck going on in this country. I think COVID did it, and I think we've ruined a lot of our work and industrious effort here. I really do. I don't know if you have a se- uh, a take on that yet. Maybe it's too early to say, but the tea leaves oh. are not good to me.
2: No, Seth, this opens up into a much wider social problem beyond just labor force participation rates. Yeah. Okay. And we won't have time to treat it here, but I'll bet this will punch some buttons and so we can follow up some other time. I'd love to. I, I, I think about a couple of uh, facts. Uh, among the decline in labor force participation rate is especially younger men. Yeah. Uh, second, younger men are not going to college. We yeah. know this, right? I mean, right. colleges are now 60 40 women, but yep. we're told that women are in an oppressed class for yep. some reason. Um, I think there's a, a general cultural civilizational problem that you could call the war on men. I yep. mean, our friend Christina Hoff Summer yep. wrote the War on Boys yep. twenty years ago. Yep. It's only gotten worse. It's gotten worse, and they are these, becoming women. All these things are right. All these things are wrapped together. Yeah, they are, and and, think, and, and yeah. now
1: throw in the opioid crisis, and and right. and and it's it's. Yeah, yeah, we we we're, we're inundated with with where we're going to have to either embrace the suck, as uh, I don't remember who said that, someone. Uh, we're either going to have to embrace the suck or get this conservative movement charged up and ready to rock and roll in the next two years, which is why yeah. I wanted to get you on in the first place. Uh,
2: I think I think it's Austin Bay who did uh, embrace the suck. Is that right? Is that I Austin <laughs> Bay? I think it was Austin. Yeah. But, uh, What's I'm Austin sure, doing but...
1: these days? Yeah. Steve Hayward, um, again, for your friendship, your time, your scholarship, your work, everything. Thank you very, very much. And let, let us do hope, as we do acknowledge the problems of this past year and that we have identified, let, it, let us hope for a better 2023.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And happy New Year, Seth.
1: Happy New Year to you, brother. And uh, thank you for everything you do and you are. Okay, folks, uh, as I go to break uh, and speaking of work and industriousness, let me put in a word for our friends and sponsors at Y-Refi. If you are concerned with stock market volatility, especially with Joe Biden in office, Y-Refi offers an investment in a portfolio with a high fixed rate of return that's not correlated to the stock market. It's a portfolio where you'll know what each monthly statement will look like with no surprises. You can turn your monthly income on or off, compound, it, whatever you like, and no loss of principal if you need your money back at any time. Your interest is compounded daily, you're paid monthly, and there are no fees. This is a secure collateralized portfolio that delivers a high fixed interest rate. How high? Up to 10.25%. Ten and a quarter percent. They are a due diligence approved firm. And you can learn more about them by going to investyrefi.com. That's the word invest, the letter Y, R-E-F-Y dot com. Investyrefi or call them at 888 Y-Refi 34. 888 y 34. Uh, we will have, uh, a couple concluding thoughts when we come back and, uh, we'll be right back. Thanks for spending some of your afternoon with us. We will be uh, live and alive here uh, tomorrow, right, Bill? We will be. Uh, So we will do our end-of-the-year show with you. It's going to be a little different, uh, parts of it. Going to get a little little more philosophical, at least in one of our hours, and a little more personal, too. You may want to... Try not to miss that. Um, In any event, thanks for spending some of your afternoon today with us. I, I don't mean to be down on this country when I say embrace the suck, but I think all of us can identify that something dramatic has changed in this country in the last two years. And it's not just due to the Biden presidency. Um, I really think it was a lot of the covid ethos, um, whether we're talking about uh, the anxieties, whether we're talking about the rise in uh, mental illness, uh, whether we're talking about the poor education outcomes, whether we're talking about three years in a row of um, of our of our of our declining uh, longevity and age, uh, which is unheard of in a in a in a. In a capitalist, uh, successful capitalist society, whether we're talking about an economy that is uncertain, uh, whether we're talking about any number of things, including our ability to get a plane from, you know, Phoenix to Denver or wherever to wherever. Um, I'm not buying the weather excuse, by the way. You know, weather was foreseen. Weather has been foreseen since before God was a child. Um, I'm tired of hearing Excuses about weather. If we're in 2022 and can't handle a little rain and snow, well, it shouldn't shut down things in Phoenix and it shouldn't shut down things everywhere else. We have the immigration crisis, we have the drug crisis. It's going to take a heavy lift and a big man or woman to fix this. Uh, and as I kind of hope you got from my interview with Steve, we've been here before and we came out of it before. So while I do maybe perhaps sound pessimistic, I know that uh, we can be operational pessimists but should be theoretical optimists because we've turned it around and we can do it again. And hopefully we'll try and do it together. Until tomorrow, God bless you all. I am Seth Leibson. Class is dismissed.